Let's surf our hearts. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word now, we thank you for your word, Lord, that it is so complete. That, Lord, it tells the end from the beginning. And the Father, it speaks so clearly and with such clarity into the days in which we live. And it gives us such great instruction and advice. So, Father, help us this morning to just glean from these wonderful truths that we have. Lord, things that will affect the way we live our lives. Father, we want to be separated for you, sanctified. Lord, set apart for the things that you want to do in us and through us and with us. So, Father, just teach us this morning. Give us a greater understanding and knowledge of you. And, Father, ultimately we pray that through these things we will see it clearer and greater clarity that we would see our Saviour. And so, Father, we just commit to you this time now. Father, bless the words that I speak, Lord, and give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come as far in our journeying through the Bible this year as the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, incredible prophet, uh, amazing book in itself. One uh, commentator said this, Probably no book of the Old Testament is as little read as his. It may well be the least popular as it is the least known of the Old Testament. Now, it's kind of a bold statement, but in some sense it's maybe true. I don't know if you've tried reading through Ezekiel. You read through um, many of the prophets we have, and we've gone through Isaiah, and there's some wonderful, beautiful pieces in Isaiah that we pull out and hold on to. Jeremiah, again, there's some great verses and memory verses. Ezekiel's not quite the same. Ezekiel, we find, is kind of shrouded in all sorts of um, analogies and types and shadows and all sorts of things. Uh, And in many ways, it's not as easy to read on the surface. There's lots of detail in there, uh, particularly in the latter chapters of the book. Another commentator um, said this, His book is difficult, obscure and tantalizing, but man needs it just as much as the Hebrew exiles needed it. There is no book of the Old Testament in which the theological views of the author shine out with greater clearness than they do in this. Another said this, We best understand Ezekiel as we try to grasp what his own generation should have understood. And that will be something we'll try and do as we go through in a moment. We'll look a little bit about the times that Ezekiel was living in. As we start to get a real feel for the experience that he had, what was going on at that time, It will help us to understand his message, how it should have applied to those that heard it, and in a sense how it should also apply to us today. Another comment is this. Ezekiel has something almost completely missing from modern thoughts. The element of hope. I love that. This is so powerful because we read so much of the problems in the world and everything else and uh, the challenges that face humanity. And the world has by and large lost the whole concept of hope, what hope really is, something that we can really look forward to with an excitement and an expectation. And of course, when we're dealing with scripture, we're not dealing with a blind hope or something that we would just like to happen. We're dealing with things that God has already said in advance. And one of the key things that we find in Ezekiel's ministry is that he was bringing hope to these people that had been taken away from their homeland and didn't know what, what the future held for them. And they were hearing all sorts of conflicting ideas from the uh, uh, false prophets and so on at that time. Uh, Ezekiel brings this incredible clarity um, to this situation and tells them that there really is hope. Another commentator says this, His mission was to justify God's dealings with Israel and to keep alive in individual souls the faith which was ready to perish under the pressure of, of adversity. 
The same thing again. Because he deals with this whole subject of there is something wonderful yet to come. God has a plan through these struggles, through these trials. It's such a, a great momentum that he gives to keep on keeping on. Ezekiel, of course, was a prophet to the exiles in Babylon. So Jerusalem went through a number of sieges in 606 BC. This is when Nebuchadnezzar first comes upon Jerusalem and he takes away a number of captives. Daniel is taken at that point. But then, just a few years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back again and this time he takes somewhere around about 10,000 of the, the choice men and women from the land to uh, Babylon. And Ezekiel is taken amongst this group. Ezekiel, not dissimilar in some senses to Jeremiah, a priest um, from a priestly family and so on. Um, And it's interesting to realize that Ezekiel is a contemporary with Jeremiah and Daniel. He was probably around about the same age as Daniel. Daniel, when he was taken away, we'll be looking next week, was around about 14 years old when he's taken captive. And, you know, we'll we'll talk a lot about um, just the challenge to face a young man. But But Ezekiel... The same kind of age. And we, we also can deduce that because Jeremiah was that much older, Jeremiah had been prophesying in Jerusalem, um, we can almost be certain that Ezekiel would have heard and listened and may even sat at the feet of Jeremiah, listening to the things that Jeremiah was saying about the destruction and the judgment that God was going to bring upon the land of Israel and particularly upon Jerusalem. And so just as a young man, Ezekiel seems to have had these great godly influences around him that clearly impact his life as he goes forward. <clears throat> he was about uh, 22 years in ministry from the time that he steps onto the, to the scene. Um, he's taken at the, around about the age of 25. For the first five years of his captivity, he's not involved in anything. But just as is typical for the priests, by the time he gets to age 30, He's starting to think what he's going to do with his life. And God calls him at that point, as we'll see. And certainly, Ezekiel is the most dramatic of all the prophets. And we see that in these kind of um, dramatic plays uh, that he kind of lays on for the exiles, those that have come from Israel uh, whilst he's in Babylon, is he lays on these um, dramatic uh, demonstrations of the things that God is going to do. Now, of course, Ezekiel class is one of the major prophets. That doesn't mean that he's more important than some of the others. Um, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those four, are considered the major prophets, mainly to do with the quantity of their writings and uh, so on. So his name, as we find with many of the, the, the Hebrew prophets, and indeed many of the, the Jews, that they introduced God's name within their name. Uh, Daniel, we'll see next time, is uh, God is my judge. Well, Ezekiel means God will strengthen. As I said already, he was a priest, and we find that that line goes back to Zadok, who was around during the time of uh, David and Solomon, uh, and ultimately all the way, obviously, back to uh, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, um, as we see the Levitical tribes established and set up. So he's of this priestly line and so on. Born around 622 BC. So that's about 100 years after the Assyrians have come and taken the northern kingdom into captivity. So that's already happened. Isaiah had prophesied and had lived through that period. Um, so we're about 100 years further on now. And the Assyrians had tried to come. They tried to take Jerusalem. And God had dealt with them very dramatically. Uh, Hezekiah was the king at that time. And then we go on down, down to these final kings of Judah. And it's during their time that Ezekiel uh, is in the land of Israel, growing up as a young man, and then taken captive to Babylon. 
<coughs> the time that he's born was during the, the midst of Josiah's reforms. You remember over the last few weeks we've mentioned this a number of times. That Josiah, this young king, but a godly king, sets about trying to repair the temple. And as a result of that effort, they find a copy of the scriptures. And that just brings this kind of transformation. He sends priests out throughout the land to teach them the law of the Lord again. Um, so it's in that culture that Ezekiel would have been growing up. He saw then the iniquity of the three subsequent kings. So he had this great contrast of just as a very young child looking at this great king Josiah, but then the three kings that followed on from there, who actually were, were Josiah's sons, um, and just the iniquity and the problems that caused for the nation. As I said, at the age of about 25, he's taken to Babylon. For five years, he's there. And then suddenly, God calls him into ministry. As with Isaiah and Jeremiah, his ministry started with a very specific call that God obviously gives to him. And to deliver a very specific message. Each of these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, God gives them a very clear and distinct message that they are to bring to the nation, to the people of Israel, whether they're in the land or now, as the case with Ezekiel in exile. Ezekiel clearly was God's man of the hour, the man that God had appointed and chosen for this particular task that he had for him. And it's interesting to note that Ezekiel knew how to struggle. It's one of the things we find with a number of the prophets. Jeremiah, we were talking about uh, last week in a Bible study during the week, we were just mentioning about some of the struggles that he experienced. Jeremiah knew the problems that life could throw at you. He knew what it was like to be isolated, to be out on his own. And Ezekiel, we find, just the same. Ezekiel stands up as almost this kind of like desert rose, this lone, lone voice for God. We find that his wife died, which was actually in fulfilment of a prophecy that God had even given to him. And that occurs as the final siege in Jerusalem was taking place. Now that, we could read over it in the text, but it's a very traumatic moment. You know, obviously he loved his wife suddenly to lose his wife, and then to know also that the city of his fathers was being destroyed, whilst he's there feeling almost helpless in Babylon. And yet, of course, God has this great plan for his life. But interestingly, we see a great comparison. A number of the, the characters in the Old Testament, we talk about um, these um, being Christ-like or these pre-figuring, pre-modeling of Jesus in some way. Of course, David, we see very clearly, was that type of uh, character, very, very Christ-like in a number of attributes. Isaac is the, the son of Abraham. We see him as being a son of the father who's offered up and so on. Another type of Christ in many ways. But Ezekiel, we find that he's acquainted with grief, just as Jesus was. We find that Ezekiel has this shepherd's heart. In fact, over 16 times in his writings, we find this allusion to kind of a shepherd and the role of a shepherd and so on. Um, clearly, metaphorically, he wept over Jerusalem. We see and we can detect from his writings that it's kind of breaking heart as this destruction, this judgment comes upon Jerusalem. And yet, just like Jesus, he declares God's righteousness and faithfulness. And in fact, even beyond that, we find that he was a prophet and a preacher. Jesus, of course, both of those things as well. Another commentator, commentator says this, As a prophet, preacher, writer, and watchman of souls, Ezekiel stands with the greatest of the Hebrews. He is at once one of the most mysterious, yet one of the most entrancing of the Hebrew seers. Seers just being a word for prophet you know, that we find in the Old Testament. Another comment this, Ezekiel stands forth as the most powerful figure during the years of Jewish captivity in Babylonia. He kept alive in an alien land the faith 
which had made Israel. Again, that faith and that trust in God. If you just stop and think about this, that Israel are taken captive, and so many of them uh, taken away um, during the siege uh, that Ezekiel uh, is uh, captured during, and subsequently, uh, ten years later or so, uh, the remnant of the, the nation are taken away as well. Uh, and we see that during that time, rather than just blend in to their culture, the Jews remain very separate very distinct ethnic group of people. They don't just get absorbed into the culture as many of the other nations did. And Ezekiel is one of the individuals that God uses in a sense to bring that about by keeping this real sense of national identity and the purpose that God has for them. John Wayne made this comment. He said, he deserves credit for leading the exiled nation safely through their ordeal. You start to see such an important role this young man is given. And maybe he didn't really fully appreciate or understand these things. But as we look back through history, we see the impact that this man Ezekiel had. Even to 1948. Because it's on the authority of the book of Ezekiel that David Ben-Gurion renames the state of Israel, Israel. Is on the authority of Ezekiel that that's done. So we see the, the effect that he's had down through the nations, down through the corridors of time. Just a, a little bit of what it was like in Babylon at this time. The Jews themselves were treated well. They weren't harshly treated. They weren't treated like slaves and so on. Now, that may well be as a direct result of Daniel. Daniel had gone to Babylon um, just a few years earlier than Ezekiel. And very quickly, Daniel becomes elevated to effectively the role of prime minister. Certainly one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, most trusted uh, aides and allies and so on. And clearly, as we'll see next time, Nebuchadnezzar goes to Daniel and asks all sorts of questions and advice regarding the running of the nation. And it may well be on the back of that that the Jews were well treated in Babylon. But certainly it wasn't uh, a slavery and, uh, and so on as the Assyrians had certainly done. And there's an interesting aside because God promised this judgment on Jerusalem and actually told the Jews that they would be safe and cared for and looked after if they went to Babylon. And those that did, that's exactly what happened. They were safe. They were well treated. And eventually those are the ones that are able to come back to the land. Only 50,000 of them chose to, but the offer was there. And they settled, of course, in their little communities. Uh, their family ties were respected. And they're able to remain, as I said, separate from the other nations because of these things. They're also allowed to practice their religion. They weren't told they're not allowed to worship their God and so on. Uh, and their elders were allowed to function. Now, the place that they actually lived, or certainly Ezekiel lived, was just a little way outside of uh, the center of Babylon. Um, but they're obviously allowed to, to live a Jewish life, yet in this strange land. The only restriction seems to be that they were not allowed to return to Israel. Clearly, that was one of the, the rules that have been imposed on them. Uh, and obviously, no attempt is made until finally Cyrus grants that permission uh, some years later. In fact, 70 plus years later, in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jeremiah had given. But as a result of the, the comfort in the land, many of them decide to stay even after the exile had ended. And actually that leads on to the book of Esther. Esther really is a, a demonstration of the fact that many of the Jews didn't choose to go home, but they stayed, as it were, in exile, stayed in those places where they'd ended up. And uh, the whole book of Esther really is because many of the Jews had not chosen to go home. And it just attests to the fact that it was a relatively comfortable environment for them. They had everything they needed, they weren't being persecuted as such. 
Now, during this time as well, the false prophets were filling the exiles with false hopes for a speedy return to Jerusalem. And it's in this kind of culture that Ezekiel's stepping onto the scene. All these people saying, oh, it's going to be fine. It will be peaceful. We'll be able to go home soon. This is only just a, a momentary thing that we're going to be here. And they saw this. In fact, we pick up in the chapter 13, verse 16, 19 and so on. Uh, they saw peace for Jerusalem when there was no peace and caused the people to trust in lies. Now, again, very similar to the things that Jeremiah had been saying. Uh, Ezekiel now encounters himself firsthand. So while Jeremiah was declaring the imminent fall of Jerusalem from within the city of Jerusalem, we find Ezekiel was predicting the same from the land of Babylon. So Ezekiel's taken away, Jeremiah is still in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is speaking and telling everybody that God is going to bring this judgment, the city is going to fall. Well, at the same time, Ezekiel is saying the same thing in the land of Babylon. In fact, Ezekiel actually tells us the day that it took place. And from that, it helps us from a chronological point of view to start tying some of these details together. But at the same time as that, Daniel is now in this elevated place and position of prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's government. So we see these three men. As I think I mentioned uh, the last time of the Bible study. You know, what a kind of conference that would have been. You know, we, we love kind of Bible conferences when we get opportunity and things. And just to have a conference, if you could have just got Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel there all at the same time, how incredible it would have been to hear from these individuals. But you know, they were just ordinary people that were obedient that gave their lives to the service of God. There was nothing intrinsically special about them. They were just obedient to the call of God on their lives. And Daniel, of course, was God's prophet to the Babylonian rulers, but Ezekiel was the prophet, in a sense, God's voice to the captive Hebrews. So although they're both in Babylon now at the same time, they have very distinct and different roles. Let's um, have a look to start with. We'll just jump in at chapter 2. We'll look at the call of Ezekiel. And we'll make some comments as we go through. So we pick up in chapter 2 of Ezekiel, verse 1. And we read, And he said to me, this is God speaking now to Ezekiel, Son of man. And that phrase we see repeated quite often um, through the book of Ezekiel. And it's really just a contrast that, that he's a, a human. And the contrast is between the divine and the natural. Um, but the Son of Man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spoke unto me, and set me on my feet, that I heard him that spoke unto me. And he said unto me, Son of Man, I send thee to the children of Israel. So very clear as to who he's to go to speak to. To a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are, impot- they are impotent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee uh, unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, and they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. Now, incredible just to this on its own, this challenge, that God is speaking to them. This is, we see all through this book God speaking. In fact, over 200, in fact, 203 times that phrase occurs in the book. Thus says the Lord God. So we see there's really so much of this book is God directly speaking uh, to the people. But again, the message. Notice what Ezekiel's being told here. I want you to go and tell them. And whether they listen or whether they don't listen, that doesn't change the fact that you're called to go and speak to them. We're told whether they will forbear for their rebellious house, yet shall they know that there's been a prophet among them. 
you know, there's a challenge for us because clearly this is a message for today and for you and I. Because we live in a world that has, by and large, turned its ears and heart and mind away from God and from the things of God. And yet we're still called to be salt, to be light, to go and preach the gospel in season, out of season, and so on. We'll look at that in just a moment. But we are also in a strange land. This isn't our homeland. We are, as it were, in exile here. You know, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. And we're here with this mission, with this calling. You know, I've said before... There's nothing to stop the Lord taking us all home to heaven right now. Because everything was accomplished from the point of the resurrection. And actually you could argue if you wanted to, 50 days on from that, from Pentecost when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Really from that point there is nothing in God's plan that will prevent us being taken to heaven right now. So you've got to ask, why is it that God has chosen to leave the church? Well, clearly one of the reasons is as a witness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And the second reason is training. For you and I, God has left us that we would learn, we would grow through the experiences and we'd become equipped and ready and prepared for the things that God has for us, both now and in the light of eternity, the things that we don't yet know that God has planned for us. But as a regard to a witness, God clearly has left the church to be light in this world, to stand in the gap. To be that, that, that group of people that would bring, in a sense, a, a different perspective from that which the world is forever pushing forward. To say, no, there is another way. There's a different way. There is God's way. And so we've got to understand that our being here, if we're not using it, and we're not seeing that we're growing personally, and that we're using our lives as witnesses for the Lord, really your life isn't fulfilling the purpose for which God has called us and chosen to leave us here. So this, again, is a challenge. That whether people will listen to you or not doesn't mean that we then just say, well, people wouldn't listen, there's no point. No, God is saying to Ezekiel, look, even if they don't listen, you go, that they will know that there's been a prophet among them. The question for us, does our generation know that a servant of God has been among them? What about the people that you mix with, the people maybe you uh, come into from a working point of view or in your uh, daily routines, whatever you do? You know, do people around you know that you're a servant of God? Do you change the flavour of the environment that you're in? Do they know that a prophet has been among them? Somebody that speaks on behalf of the Lord? Because they should. We should have such an impact. Because otherwise, we've got to ask ourselves again, what are we doing? Why are we, we still here? The only reason we can argue, as I just said, is that God has called us to be ambassadors. To be witnesses for him. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they were here or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious, we read. And just as with Jeremiah, we're called to speak even if they won't listen, as we said a moment ago. Now in 2 Timothy, we're told, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And we're told, because the time will come when people will not listen. They will heap up to themselves teachers. They'll just find all sorts of ways to hear what they want to hear. And they're going to be turned from the truth to fables. But notice here what Paul says to Timothy. That preach in season and out of season. Barry Smith, the uh, New Zealand evangelist, um, I got to know him many years ago. He's now gone home to be with the Lord. But he used to say, um, this, his interpretation, his paraphrase of this is, you know, preach the word when it's convenient and when it isn't. When people are wanting to hear and when they don't want to hear. You know, there's never a bad time to preach the word. Every opportunity we get. And again, you know, this can be just on a one-to-one basis. 
It can be in a, an open environment. But wherever God has placed us, this is to be our mission and our, our mandate. Again, if we were living in the days of Ezekiel and we saw this real physical destruction and these things going on, we recognized that it was really turbulent times, maybe our attitude would be different. The problem is we get very comfortable. And even though we know scripture, we know that there's going to be God's judgment coming, a time of tribulation. It's so easy to fall into this. Well, it's okay for now. You know, it's nice and comfortable. And we get so used to our comfort and everything else. We sometimes forget that we're on a mission. In chapter 3, we read this. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. And when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And thou givest him not warning, nor speaks to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. What a statement. God saying to Ezekiel, I want you to go and speak to these people. You know, if they don't listen to you, that's fine. But if you don't go, and then they die, and you've not told them, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. God carries on and says, Yet, if you do warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man does turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sins. And his righteousness, which he, which he shall not done, shall be remembered. Um, uh, but his blood will I require at thine hand. God making it very clear that the onus on Ezekiel is not to look at the results, but the effort. He's got to speak. He's got to go and do that which God has called him to. And again, nevertheless, if you do warn the righteous man, that the road, and the righteous sins not, and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he is warned, also thou hast delivered thy soul. So, you know, the challenge, of course, here is, two, is twofold. One, we're to speak, but also persevere. Because even if they don't listen, there's not a reason to give up. We carry on speaking. Because we don't know what God's going to do in these individual lives. We don't know how an individual soul will respond or not respond. But the onus upon us is to speak, and we leave the rest to God. If somebody repents, if somebody turns from their wicked way, well, of course, that's what God ultimately wants. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, we'll read this, verse 11. Say unto them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Well, that's what God wants. But he's chosen. This, I mean, again, let's just back up, because God doesn't need us to do these things. But God has given us the opportunity in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's going to make the difference there? For these people that at the moment don't know God, God is giving them this stretched period of time. He's saying he's not willing that any should perish, but waiting. Well, God is waiting that his servants would be involved in this work of preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation. People make the comment, I don't believe a God of love would send me to hell. You know, God is a God of love. And because of that, he's given you, he's given every individual the dignity to choose where you'll spend eternity. And we need to understand that 
you know, many people in this world have never heard the gospel. We live in a culture, I mean, children years ago, they grew up in school systems, they were taught from the Bible, they understood the basis of the gospel, and we lived in a country and a culture that understood the gospel. So many children grow up today, they don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the good news. And the, the strange thing is, we have in our minds that people don't want to hear, people don't want to listen to me. And the moment you start in conversations, you find how incredibly open people are to talk. Of course you'll find some that don't want to talk. But you'll find many people that are willing to talk. Ezekiel thrust into this kind of situation. <clears throat> His mission was also to vindicate God for bringing judgment on Israel. We know that's not dissimilar to our situation. That situation I just mentioned a moment ago about when people challenge, would God send someone to hell? A lot of people think God would be unfair. Well, part of our mission is to vindicate God and show that God is absolutely just in sending somebody to hell if they choose not to accept the offer of salvation that he's provided. Ezekiel also had to undo the teaching of the false prophets and to clear their minds of their delusions. Well, what about you and I? You know, we live in a situation where we have so many false prophets in the church, so many who speak all sorts of untruths. I mean, we were just hearing this morning of um, Rowan Atkinson or Rowan Williams. I get confused. One's a comedian and one's ex-archbishop. And, you know, the problem is we've got so many people that speak utter lies and in a sense, that's our challenge as well, to go and undo what they've done as we speak to people. And Ezekiel also had to convince them to unpack, as it were, to make their homes in Babylon. You know, God has said, look, you're here for the duration until such a time as my word is fulfilled and you will return home. This is where you're to remain. And we can argue the same, because although we are to be looking and ready and waiting for the coming of the Lord, God has placed you here. You're alive, you're here, this is it for now. And until such a time as God calls you home, in a sense we've got to make camp here for a while. This may not be our ideal place, this world is not our home, as we said, we're citizens of heaven, not earth. But we're to make camp here. And all the time we're here, God will use us if we're just willing and obedient. But those are the challenges that Ezekiel was facing. Well, in the land of Babylon, just a couple of other interesting asides here, the synagogue and also the office of the scribe were born. Up until that point, there weren't synagogues in Israel, but it's from this point that these things start to be established. And, of course, they've stayed with Jews to this day. Uh, Ezekiel, interestingly, often quotes from the Torah. That may well be because of the period of history that he grew up as Josiah, again, discovers a copy of the law and makes a kind of national required reading. Uh, Ezekiel as a young man, as he's learning to read probably, possibly the ages of five, six and upwards, um, would have been reading the Torah as Josiah had been instructed throughout the land. And he quotes uh, in, uh, in his book here uh, from the Torah. Uh, historically, if you want to look at the other scriptures that refer to this period of time, it's Second Kings chapters 21 to 25 and also Second Chronicles chapter 33 to 36. And that's kind of the history uh, of this time. Interestingly, there's at least 25 references to the Holy Spirit that are found in the book of Ezekiel, which is more than in any other Old Testament book, certainly on the surface anyway. Um, so we see a lot of references to God's Holy Spirit. A couple of key things to mention. The key phrases, well, the Son of Man, as I've mentioned, is used over a hundred times. As I said, it stresses really the humanity of Ezekiel in contrast to God. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me. That is used 49 times through the book. 
Um, and then over 60 times we read, and you shall know that I am Jehovah, that I am God. Uh, again, over 60 times we find that through the book. Another one, 12 times we find the glory of the Lord. It's an incredible book that deals with these kind of visions and uh, views of heaven um, that we get glimpses of elsewhere. But some of the detail we find here is unique to, to the revelation that Ezekiel shares with us. Well, the key thought is that Ezekiel taught Israel that before they could ever return to their homeland, they must return to God. There's another thing here as well, because likening this to us, as we've been talking this morning, this challenge on us to to speak to those in our community, that's what Ezekiel was doing, even if they don't listen to speak to them. Ezekiel was teaching them that before they could ever return to their homeland, they must return to God. Well, for you and I, before we can go to our homeland, we must return to God. Now, I'm not suggesting we're in a backslidden state. That's not what I'm saying. But there's so much more of God that we have to learn. And we're to use these days now, before the Lord comes back and calls us home, before the rapture of the church, to use this time to really return to God, to put away the things of this world. Well, the first three chapters of the book deal with the call. We've looked at that already now, uh, as Ezekiel is called into this incredible ministry. From chapter 4 through to 24, we then have really laid out for us God's judgment on Jerusalem. Now, these, are, these prophecies are all given before the siege of Jerusalem. And God was speaking through Ezekiel, saying what was going to happen. Then we carry on in chapters 25 through to 32. We start to see God's judgment on the nations. But the interesting thing to note here is that they're all Muslim nations. Now, some of these prophecies, and we'll look at it in a moment, some of them have been fulfilled. Many of the prophecies have yet to find their ultimate fulfillment. It was interesting, some of you may be aware and have heard of a man by the name of Walid Shubat. Um, he was an ex-terrorist. Um, he's become a Christian. But the thing that really challenged him was as he read through the Bible, which of course Muslims are encouraged to do in the, the Quran. It tells them they should, uh, they accept uh, the Bible, certainly the Old Testament uh, and such, and the prophets. The interesting thing is when the prophets are speaking about God's judgment on the nations, the nations that are named are all Islamic nations. It's very interesting. And this, as a result of this, this particular individual, Walid Shubat, uh, eventually came to the Lord as he realized that God always speaks his judgment on those nations. We'll talk a bit more in a while on that. That was given during this period of the siege of Jerusalem and so on. And then finally, after the siege, we get the restoration of the Jews. Now, this will hopefully help us as you kind of study the book, as you read through the book this year. Um, as you look at the way the book is uh, broken up, again, that first, from chapter 4 to 24, it's all about the judgment on Jerusalem. Then from 25 to 32, the judgment on the nations. And then finally, the hope that, is, uh, that Ezekiel was sharing with the people, talking to them about what God was going to do, this incredible plan. You know, we read that great verse in Ezekiel that, that God knows the plans he has for you, um, plans for uh, this, this future, um, this, this um, expected end as we have it. Uh, again, a definitive moment, and it clearly was, as Cyrus eventually allows him to go home, and then all the things that God would do after that. And in fact, the remainder of the book there, in those chapters 33 to 48, we see the return to their land prophesied. The experience of new life and unity because they were taken away captive as two separate groups of people. We have the northern kingdom, Israel, and then we have the southern kingdom, Judah. But God speaks of joining them back together as one. 
and putting a king over the nation. Chapters 38 and 39, very well-known chapters in the book of Ezekiel, they deal with this invasion of Gog and Magog. We'll talk about that uh, just briefly in a moment. And then finally, the last eight chapters start to deal with the millennial temple and the kingdom. So it's really the whole latter end of the book is all about the hope that the nation of Israel has. And of course we see uh, things in there that are very applicable to ourselves. Uh, just a couple of things just to highlight again uh, of those first parts really. Um, Ezekiel's book opens with this call, as I said, to the prophetic office. And clearly he needed to know more about Jehovah. For five years he'd been in uh, Babylon before he gets this call. And God then reveals himself to him. And we see these visions. Uh, God shows that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's got total power. Omniscient. He sees everything. And this is the God that God reveals to Ezekiel. And we have in the first chapter these various visions a vision of the stormy wind and fire, the four cherubim, the wheels, the throne of the glory of Jehovah, and all of these things laid out. Then Ezekiel's commission in chapter 2, he needed to know more about his mission. God explains very clearly what he's to do, who he's to go to. And he also needed to know what he was going to say, his message. So God gives him this scroll and tells him what he's to say. But God also, as he does with us, promises to equip him i think this is so wonderful because god never asks us just to go out there and just like leaves us abandons us and expects us to get on with it god goes with us he gives us his holy spirit he equips us gives us everything we need and of course we see this that he's taken in the spirit to the camp of the captives in babylon because he needs to understand who he's going to be speaking to well for us it's very easy we know exactly who it is god's calling us to speak to and if you're not sure, pray. Just ask God to, to bring across your path people that you should speak to. And then just share with them the wonderful things that God has done in your life. And by the way, you don't need to be a theologian to talk to other people. You just need to talk about the greatest testimony of all, which is your own life, your own heart that's been changed because of the blood of the Lamb. And then, as we said, Ezekiel is uh, put in his position of being a watchman. And again, he needs to know his duties. And it is. It's, a, it's almost like a, a military assignment. Um, that we're to be obediently uh, fulfilling. And then the opening section ends with the second vision, uh, with a special commission to speak God's message to this rebellious Judah. Now, I just want to just jump back to chapter 1, because in chapter 1 we have these four faces of the cherubim. Let's read a few verses to you. I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof the colour of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And every one had four faces. And every one had four wings. As for the likeness of their faces, picking up in verse 10, they uh, four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four had the face of an eagle. So these four faces on these creatures. It's a strange kind of image, strange thing to look at. But we've already encountered this, and we see this throughout Scripture. We've talked often about the way that the Bible is this integrated message system. And I'm certainly indebted to Chuck Nisler for just the incredible studies that he's done and taken many people through over the years to show how the Bible is so interconnected in these details. Now you remember, when we're going back in the book of Numbers, 
And we saw how in the camp in the wilderness, it was laid out like a cross. That's the way they would have camped in the wilderness, which itself, of course, is just interesting and fascinating. With the the tabernacle being right in the center, God said that he would dwell in the midst of his people, uh, as uh, Exodus 25 verse 8. But then you see that we have the tribes camped around. Each of the tribes had a particular standard or flag, if you like, um, that would represent their tribe. Now, Reuben was the chief tribe. There was two other tribes that camped with Reuben. But Reuben's standard was the ox. Ephraim, their standard was a man. Dan had the eagle as their standard. And Judah had the lion. And you notice that all of those four options are the four faces of the cherubim that we've just looked at in Ezekiel. They also appear in Revelation chapter 4. But it's no random coincidence, because all of these things speak of Jesus. Because Jesus came to serve just as an ox, a a beast of burden in a sense. But Jesus also was the perfect man. Jesus, we know, was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we find that Jesus also was the Son of God. And in a sense, mystically, that soaring above, just like an eagle, above everything that's in the world and the earth below. Jesus is above all of those things. And so we see that shape and form, that everything points to Jesus Christ. We see this same idea when we look at the Gospels themselves. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, we've studied that as a fellowship ourselves recently, and we see that Matthew presents Jesus as the King the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Messiah, the one that's coming to rule. So again we find the face of the Lion. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. In Mark's Gospel there is no genealogy, because servants wouldn't have a genealogy as such. All the other Gospels have one. And again, symbolic with the ox. Luke, we know, was a doctor. He was concerned with Jesus' humanity. And presents Jesus as the son of man. So once again we have the face of a man. And then John's gospel. Incredible gospel. And they're all amazing in their own ways. But John's gospel just presents Jesus as God manifest in the flesh. And so again that that kind of the idea of this eagle. The one that's spiritual. Soaring above everything. And so in all of these things. We just see this incredible design through scripture. Okay, let's just pull a few other things, um, key things, obviously, uh, because of time and everything else, we can't uh, do a kind of a chapter-by-chapter breakdown of a book this big. But there's some things that are just worth highlighting as we go through. In uh, the wonderful book by Henrietta C. Mears of What the Bible is All About, it's a great little book, um, it says there, Ezekiel is for the Christian today. It is a book of the times. For God's time is always revealed by his dealing with with the Jew. It was a great statement, and it's true because we've seen it through history. Now, Ezekiel in chapter 4 gives us a mathematical prophecy concerning the judgment on the nation. Now, some of you are thinking, great, don't really like maths. Well, I love maths, so just bear with me for a moment. Let's just look. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. We read, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile. And this is not all of these dramatic illustrations that Ezekiel is to do. And lay it before thee and portray it, um, portray it upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So you have to make a little model of the city of Jerusalem on this little slate, on this slab. And lay siege against it. So it's a little bit like you know when boys kind of build their little soldiers, their little toys, and they're going to build a ramp against it and so on. Um, and uh, set battering rams against it round about. And so on. And then verse 3. Moreover, take unto thou uh, an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city. 
And set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be uh, a sign to the house of Israel. Again, so this is the captives that are seeing this in Babylon. As, as Ezekiel is just dramatically doing this, all walking past, what are you doing, Ezekiel? And then he explains to them. But then we get this strange bit. Verse 4. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days, thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. So he's now told to lay on his left side for this defined period of time. It says, for I've laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days. Three hundred and ninety days, so shalt thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Okay, so as he's saying, they're a day for a year. So what he's to do for 390 days is to lay next to this little model and things he's made. And as people walk past, what, what is this man doing? And they start to understand that he's telling them this story. Okay, so this is again, it's over a year, 390 days. And then he's told, verse 6, And when you've accomplished uh, that, then, then lie on your right side, and you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I've appointed thee each day for a year. So this is the, the prophecy that, that he's given, and um, these numbers. Now, obviously, we add those together. What we see is this, that he's given a prophecy of a total of 430 years, which God clearly says, as we've just seen, will be judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now, how does that play out in history? Well, 70 years of that we know are accounted for by this captivity that Ezekiel is now part of in Babylon. So that's 70 years. But it leaves us then with 360 years of judgment for the nation that are unaccounted for. But we're given a clue. Now, you may remember we looked briefly at this when we were studying through the book of Leviticus. But in Leviticus 26, we see this. God says there, verse 14, But if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning argue, that shall consume thy eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies, and they shall hate you, shall hate you, you shall, uh, shall rule over you, and shall flee, and you shall flee when none pursues you. So that's very much what has happened through Israel's history, leading up now to the Babylonian captivity. But then we get to verse 18, and it says there, If you will not yet for all this hearken unto me. So God said, even after all this, I bring all this on you, even after that, if you still don't listen to me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So God makes it very clear that God is going to bring judgment on, the, on Israel if they're disobedient, which they were, and he did. But if after that, they still don't return to him with a whole heart, God says he will still punish them, and he'll punish them seven times more. Now that interestingly, occurs four times in that one chapter. God is very clear that he's making his point that this period of judgment would be multiplied by seven times if Israel don't turn and change and repent. Now, as I said already, Jeremiah prophesied Israel spent these 70 years in captivity as a result of the disobedience. And we're then left with that 360 years unaccounted for. So what if... As a result of this, we multiply, as Leviticus 26 indicates, 
those numbers together, the remaining amount of time. So we've got that 360 years multiplied by seven times. As God says, if after all of this you still won't, then I'll multiply your judgment by seven times. Now, in a sense, that prophecy in Leviticus is saying I'll multiply your judgment, but we don't know what the number is we're multiplying. Well, I think what we see in Ezekiel here is the number that we use because we have this remaining period that clearly, I mean, Ezekiel for over a year is been laying on one side and then the other side to illustrate God's judgment. And it's a day for a year. So we carry this through. We find if we just multiply those numbers together, some of you may have already been there, um, 2,520 years of judgment is what God, if this is correct, is prophesying and foretelling is going to come upon the nation. Now, to work out the number of days, why do we want to do that? Well, because every time we deal with scripture, God is precise. There's no ifs, ands, and possibilities, and close tos. It always works precisely. Well, so we multiply that by the number of days in a prophetic year. And again, the Bible seems to use 360 days in a prophetic year. We have 365 and a quarter. Um, but biblically, and for a number of reasons that we could discuss maybe some other time, the Bible always seems to use this 360 days uh, as a year. So if we multiply that, we actually get the number of days. So we've got the number of years as 2,520. The number of days potentially is going to be 907,200 days until Ezekiel's prophecy will be fulfilled, if this is correct. So, what happens when we plug it in and we try it? Well, this is what we get. The first siege of Jerusalem occurred in 606 BC. We're told that there was a 70-year period that they're going to be in Babylon. That's actually 25,200 days, which does work out to the day and determinates in 537 with the decree of Cyrus allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. Well, that prophecy certainly works out. That's the 70 years that Jeremiah foretold. But then, and that again, that period of time is the servitude of the nation. Now, the third siege is actually on the 10th of Tibet in the Jewish calendar, 587 BC. If we take 70 years from that as well, again, according to the prophecy that Jeremiah gives us regarding the land, well, that prophecy terminates in 518 BC, 24th of Kislev, uh, the decree that's given by Darius at that point. And that's the decree that allows them to go ahead and start rebuilding uh, the temple and so on. It's very clear the book of Haggai deals with that and so on. So they're the kind of two periods, in a sense, uh, of uh, captivity. They're not coterminous. They don't start quite at the same time um, because there's a 19-year gap in between the, the, the first and the second, well, first siege and the third siege. Um, and, of course, we have exactly the same gap here as we expect because we've got this 70-year period in between. So what happens if we now look at this remainder period of time that we've just calculated? Okay, so... Based on Ezekiel 4 and Leviticus 26, we have this 2,520 years or 907,200 days. Well, if you go from the date regarding the nation, let's take the top one first, the servitude of the nation. If this is true, this time of judgment would come to an end at that point there where the, the judgment on the nation of Israel would terminate. That works out to the 14th of May 1948. That's when Israel became a nation again. When, in a sense, this judgment on the nation finally ended and they really did return home. No longer are they under the authority or the power of some foreign realm. 
If we do the same with the desolations of Jerusalem, regarding the city now, we've got the first 70 years accounted for, so this remainder, this 360 years unaccounted for, we do the maths, again, the same period of time, 2,520 years, 907,200 days. And we work where that would come to, again, based on Ezekiel and Leviticus, it comes to the 7th of June, 1967, which is when Jerusalem was again brought back into Israeli hands. For the first time. When this period of time where Jerusalem was no was not in their control, suddenly at this point it becomes under the complete control of the Jews. Now of course there was this agreement that some of it was partitioned off and so on, but they still had the power to do so. Now if that doesn't kind of get your heart beating a little bit quicker, just check your pulse. Because the provision the, the, the precision of these prophecies is breathtaking. As we see through the span of history, how God has engineered and worked these things again according to his decrees. Now, as you notice, with 19 year gap there, of course we're going to have the same in each of these sections, which is exactly what we do. We just, there's a number of ways you can verify this and check the details and so on. Now, I, to get these details and to work out exactly how we get these day jumps, there's a, a computer tool you can use called Redshift. It's not a Christian program. It's just a program. It's an astronomy program, not astrology. It's astronomy, um, looking at the stars and so on and things like that. And obviously you can plot time and, and details. Well, what this tool does is allow you to punch in a, a date. So we put the first date in. Okay. And so this is the desolations of Jerusalem um, in 587. Okay, so it's the final siege. Now we're jumping forward the set number of days. So this is our 70 years in effect. Well, that would take us... When you punch this in, it brings up and tells you when it would come to, and it would actually come to 518 BC, when Darius signs that decree. All right? We do the same thing then from this point, and we punch in our um, remainder of the prophecy, so the 907,200 days, and once again, that would come to the 7th of June, 1967. Now this is a secular program. They're, they haven't biased it to try and prove prophetic scriptures. Um, the same thing, of course, works with the 606. So the first siege, so the servitude of the nation. We have our 70 years. We terminate in 537 BC. As we know from history, it did. And then we have, again, this jump, 907,200 days. Jumping forward in time brings us to the 14th of May, 1948. So there you go. Just Breathtaking. Let's move on. Ezekiel shows the necessity then in these first group of chapters of Jerusalem's judgment because of her disobedience. Makes it very clear why God is doing what he's doing. He dramatizes the impending siege. We just talked about that. But a whole load of different signs and explains the reason for the siege through the various messages and the extended vision. Through the next bunch of chapters, the people are still not ready to accept the fact that Jerusalem's fall. And so Ezekiel then gives another series of signs and messages and any optimism would be futile. Jerusalem's fate had been sealed because it was by God's decree. Picking up in verse, chapter 14, verse 12. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sins against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it and will break the staff of bread thereof and will set famine upon it and will cut off man and beast from it. Now, I don't know whether you notice what we see there, but it's very interesting because there's four judgments. There's famine, hurtful beasts, sword and war, and pestilence. 
The same kind of judgments that God repeatedly seems to bring as part of his divine judgment upon those in disobedience. And of course we see exactly that when we get to the tribulation. God carries on from this and says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the Lord God. God makes it very clear that you know, even these individuals wouldn't be enough to save the destruction, the judgment that God is going to bring on Jerusalem. Now, Daniel is already in Babylon, and clearly the fact that he's included in this prophecy of this scripture that God, these words that God speaks to Ezekiel, we recognize, A, the authenticity of the character and the person of Daniel, that he's in this position of uh, authority, but clearly that he has this uh, holy life, this piety and obedience before his God. Uh, Just an interesting aside. Well... The symbols and allegories and parables that we see Ezekiel getting into, uh, he gives a number in the first uh, chapters that we see, uh, representing the um, flight from the besieged city, um, and then he expostulates through the false prophets, you know, arguing with them, reasoning with them, trying to dissuade them. Um, another example he gives, and they've got all these dramatic things that the Lord calls him to, he's picturing Israel as a useless vine. And then uh, allegorically recalls Israel's long history of unfaithfulness to her bridegroom. And it gets quite graphic, some of this scripture, as God is talk, speaking to Israel as an unfaithful wife. Chapter 17 is just, again, another metaphor of the uh, vine to emphasize, in this time, King Zedekiah's disloyalty. Chapter 18 uh, answers objections to divine punishment um, by analysis of individual responsibility. You know, you can't say, well, um, God shouldn't do that or couldn't because God then just brings it down to the individual level and you realise that we're all guilty and so on. Chapter 19 then bursts forth into this kind of dirge over the princes of Judah and over Judah itself. So these are some of the specific um, uh, dramatizations, if you like, that God gives to Ezekiel to play out. As you study through, you'll see how these things work out. Chapter 16, verse 63, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Chuck Mizzler said this, It is a continual source of encouragement to God's people to have the assurance from his word that he remains faithful, even when they themselves are unfaithful. Well, we looked at this verse this morning from chapter 22. God seeking for somebody to stand in the gap. And of course, as I've already said this morning, highlighted, that challenge, that call goes out to you and I today. Are we prepared to stand in the gap between God and our neighbour? between God and the people that we work with, between God and our children that maybe don't know the Lord, between God and whatever the situation that God places us in, to stand in that gap, to intercede, to plead. Of course, God, we know, is a God that listens and delights in hearing from the prayers of his saints. He gives us a unique privilege to become involved in his programs. And has chosen, by the way, to do nothing except in answer to the prayers of his saints. You know, it just highlights the importance of prayer. <clears throat> well, interestingly, if you go to the next big chunk in the book, 25 to 32, um, I'll let you, at your leisure, go through, read these things. Um, but the nations that are highlighted here, we have the Ammonites, the Moabites, Edomites, Philistines, the nation of Tyre, the city of Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, 
uh, Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, and so on. So those are specifically highlighted as the nations that God is going to bring judgment against. And they all have interactions and relationships with Israel. They've all at some point been harsh and cruel and vindictive toward Israel. And some of these, as I said, are yet future uh, in terms of their ultimate fulfillment. Some of them are history now they've passed one of the most amazing is the city of Tyre just let me share this with you briefly well Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy Tyre now this happened three years before it actually took place it also prophesied that many nations would be against Tyre that dust would be literally scraped from the surface and the city would become just like a bare rock they also prophesied the fishermen would spread their nets on the remains of Tyre. I mean, these are bizarre prophecies. That stones and timbers would be thrown into the sea, and that Tyre would never be rebuilt, and that Tyre would never be found again. Now, these are incredible prophecies, given the importance. I mean, this would be like you and I prophesying these kind of things about London. You know, you'd never you know, be able to kind of comprehend how those things could happen. But as we go and look through history now, because we're on the other side of this, three years after the prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar does come up against Tyre. And after a 13-year siege, he finally breaks the gates down, only to find the city's almost deserted. Because unbeknown to him, what they've been doing is moving everybody and everything out of the old city and to, a, to an island that's about half a mile off the, the coast... And setting up a new city of Tyre. And so when Nebuchadnezzar gets there, the old city, effectively, there's there's nothing there. So he just destroys it, flattens it. But the new Tyre was almost impregnable because it's on this little island and the walls came right up to the edge. Very difficult to get to. Well, the next step in this is Alexander the Great, some years later, then also launches an attack. This time against the new Tyre that's now on this little island. He can't get to it. He doesn't have a sheet of, uh, fleet of ships and so on. So he builds a causeway out from the mainland to Tyre. But he needs material. So he literally scrapes the remnant of the old city into the sea to help him build this causeway. Leaving, just as Ezekiel had prophesied, the remains of Tyre just as bare rock. There's nothing left. Now upon those rocks, even to this day... Fishermen lay their nets there to dry them out and to repair them and so on. And it's something that's just been a marvel to people who would criticize the Bible because wherever you date Ezekiel, it was way before these things took place, the times of writing. And over the next 1600 years, many nations, just as Ezekiel prophesied, did attack and destroy Tyre until the final destruction in 1291, which occurred during the Crusades at the hands of the Muslims. And they finally destroyed it. And from that point, it's never been rebuilt. Now, this is, just to give you an idea, this was the mainland, this is where the original city was. They kind of fled, they got to this island, they made it kind of like a fortress, almost impenetrable. Um, Alexander scraped all the dust and it's kind of ended up building this causeway so he could get into the city and destroy it. Well, over the years, we've then got kind of landfill and so on, so that's very much how it looks today. Let me just read, uh, we'll take you through some of these bits. Floyd Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, in the Battle for the Christian Faith, says this. It is also written, Thou shalt be built no more. Other cities destroyed by enemies had been rebuilt. Jerusalem was destroyed many times, but always has risen again from the ruins. What reason was there for saying that old Tyre might not be rebuilt? But 25 centuries ago, a Jew in exile over in Babylonia looked into the future at the command of God and wrote the words, Thou shalt uh, be built no more. 
The voice of God has spoken, and Old Tyre today stands as it has for 25 centuries, a bare rock, uninhabited by man. Today, anyone who wants to see the site of the old city can have it pointed out to him along the shore, but there is not a ruin to mark the spot. It has been scraped clean and has never been rebuilt. The great freshwater springs of Reslane are at the site of the mainland city of Tyre, and no doubt supplied the city with an abundance of fresh water. These springs are still there and still flow, but their water runs into the sea. The flow of these springs was measured by an engineer and found it to be about 10 million gallons daily. It is still an excellent site for a city and would have fresh water enough for a large modern city, yet it has never been rebuilt. Thus, this prophecy has stood true for more than 2,500 years. It's incredible when God speaks. Well, just to close out the book, the... Last chapters, as we said already, deal very much with the restoration of the nation. Chapter 36, very much like we see in the book of Jeremiah. These repeated references to God's restoration. In chapter 36, picking up verse 24, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. For all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Once again, the whole suggestion of replacement theology, that God has finished with Israel, are just, just, they, they're just this, I mean, they're just ridiculous when you look at these scriptures. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these, these characters just show the, the absurdity. Chapter 37, a familiar portion to many, I'm sure, but it's where we have this vision of the dry bones. In essence, what we see there is that God is saying that Israel are going to be brought back to life in the flesh, but they're still dead. Now, that's just what's happened right up to this point. They've come back as a nation, 1948 we mentioned earlier, but they still haven't yet had the spirit within them. And this prophecy speaks of that time when the spirit will be breathed into the nation and they'll become alive. And this will occur, Isaiah 11, 11, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And it goes on. And of course, it will be at the second coming when Israel are finally brought back into the land. At this point, they'll be filled with the spirit of God. They will serve God. As I say, part of this has been fulfilled with 1948. The remainder of that is yet to be fulfilled. But the Lord through Ezekiel also proclaims the coming together again of national Israel. So this restoration has to do with the national entity of Israel as well as a spiritual revival or restoration which the Lord announced previously in chapter 36. And he foretells the symbolic act of joining two sticks together in the future as the joining together of Judah and Israel as one nation with one king and above them there will be David who we're told will sit on the throne and he will rule and reign over the house of Israel and above him the Messiah will be the king of kings the lord of lords will rule over the whole earth an amazing portion of scripture to read and to study the Magog invasion again just to mention it in passing because it's, it's again filled many many books the big question is the timing of this well what is it to start with 
Well, in Ezekiel 38 39, we see here that God is going to intervene to quell an ill-fated invasion of Israel by Magog and its allies. Who, are, who is Magog? Well, the allies we're specifically told about are Persia, uh, Kush, which is kind of northern Africa, Afut, Libya, Goma, it's the area of uh, up into Germany and Turkey and so on, uh, Tagamath, Meshach, uh, many believe reference to Moscow area, that area, uh, the Scythians inhabited, and Tubal and so on. So uh, although these have old names, the problem is we've changed the names down through history, but their ancestors still had these names. And it's interesting because this battle, it appears that these nations all come against Israel and the text seems to indicate, indicate the use of nuclear weapons as a result of all of this situation. Now, again, these names go back to that list that we find in Genesis chapter 10. Magog is listed and Goma as sons of Japheth. Uh, the other ones that are confederacies there, you see all those other names coming from the descendants of Noah down through the ages. Now, looking at it on a map... The areas that we're dealing with, you can see there, all of those nations launched their attack, combined attack, to try and wipe out and destroy Israel. Now this could be closer on a horizon than we can possibly imagine. At any moment, this type of thing could happen. Because you recognize, instinctively, we're dealing with, effectively, Islamic nations. By and large, the, the, the Islamic influence here is overwhelming. And we know that Islam wants Israel wiped off the face of the map. As a result, God will step in and save Israel dramatically. <clears throat> the suggestion about nuclear weapons, what we find is that the weapons that are left over after Israel get this resounding victory provide enough fuel for seven years. And the professionals are also hired to go and clean the battlefield. They're told that they're to wait seven months before they even go and try and do anything. But then for the next seven months after that, they go through this battlefield and they put markers or people would put markers near a body if they find it. And the professionals would come and clear it up. Nobody would touch it. Seems to suggest some kind of radioactive decay and fallout and so on. <clears throat> and they're to bury the dead east of the Dead Sea, which interestingly is downwind. And again, as I said, if a traveller finds something, the professionals have missed, they don't touch it. They just mark the location. Just an amazing uh, set of scriptures and prophecies and so on. And again, if you, if you do a study, and maybe one time well, it'll be good to go through this together as a fellowship, but you'll see how it talks about a brother fighting against brother, swords being used. Well, doesn't that sound a little bit Islamic in the kind of the wording and the context? You see all of those things in the text there. Okay, so the book ends with this prophecy looking forward to the millennial kingdom and the temple. A, te a temple that has not yet been built. And we see a description of this temple that is very, very detailed. It's certainly not symbolic, uh, as some try and suggest. We're given heights and widths and dimensions. You know, they can't be symbolic. They are specific. Um, we're told that all nations will worship there. Now, offerings and sacrifices will be resumed, which is a very interesting subject in itself, but only open on the Sabbath day and new moons. So that brings us to the end of the book of Ezekiel, an incredible book to read and to study. And it has so much, as we've said already, applicable to today. Romans 5 verse 5 says this, Hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, 
which is given to us. It was hope that Ezekiel was given to these captives to get them through this period of time until they could return home. Well, you know, we need that kind of hope because we are, in many ways, like captives in a land that's not ours. We're waiting to go home. And we need that hope. Not just a, uh, um, it might be, it would be lovely if it could be, but this is a solid hope based in God's promises that we're going home, that this world is not our home. But also hope so that we understand that we have a real purpose why we're here as well. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just again thank you for your word. We thank you for men like Ezekiel that were so faithful to you. And Lord, because of their faithfulness, we have these records. Lord, that don't just detail and deal with the times in which he lived, but speak so clearly and powerfully into the days in which we live. Father, help us to comprehend and understand these things and how they should impact our lives. Father, help us to understand that we are called to be ambassadors for you, to be witnesses. And Lord, whether the world listens or not, we're still to preach in season, out of season. Lord, give us that boldness, I pray. And Father, we also pray this day, once again, for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, as we see the enemies of Israel ganged up against her, Oh, Father, we pray that you just do a mighty work in protecting your people as your word says you will. Lord, we acknowledge that there is a time of tribulation coming on them, the time of Jacob's trouble. But Father, watch over that nation. Lord, I pray that those missiles that Hamas are firing into Israel, Lord, will not hit civilian targets. They will not hit even military targets. But Lord, that they will all be wiped out and diffused before they hit the ground. Protect Israel, we pray, Father. And Lord, we just, again, acknowledge that that real peace will only come when the Prince of Peace comes. And so, Father, we pray, for Lord, longing for that time when Israel's eyes will be opened, where they will look upon you whom they pierced and they'll mourn. But, Lord, that their hearts will be converted and you'll put that new heart within them, just as you've done with us. And, Lord, you'll fill them with your spirit. Lord, we look forward to this time and we give you the glory and the honour now in Jesus' name. Amen.